0: Well, I would invite you to uh, return in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We are back in our study of Luke. It's been a few weeks. If you've just started coming in the past few weeks, we've actually been studying the Gospel of Luke. We've just hit it behind Christmas. And now we're back in it again here, looking at Luke chapter 11, picking up where we left off. Uh, now next Sunday, I won't be here. Jeff Johnson will be preaching, so pray for him as he prepares this week. Uh, great, uh, great opportunity next Sunday. Myself and Kevin Jesmer will be down with Ron and Jen Karras down at their training place in Texas to meet with the staff at, to every tribe to see about uh, really partnering with this outreach potential in Ontario, Canada, among the First Nation people. This is a, an incredible mission opportunity, not just for Ron and Jen, as uh, potentially our missionaries, but also for our church, an opportunity for our church body, we have an opportunity to really start going up there. It's, it's only about a 12 to 15 hour drive and we could actually begin to do some ministry work up there. And so doors are opening and, and we're praying to just see where God would lead us. And, and when I get back, I'll have more details for you. But we're going down to meet with the leadership of to every tribe and to talk through that relationship, talk through the possibility for our church to be involved, and Ron and Jen, and, and, uh, and so pray for us as we're down there over the weekend, and we'll be back, and then Lord willing, uh, have an update for you after that. But this morning, we are returning here to the Gospel of Luke, and before we begin, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity we've had to lift our voices to you, to To have been brought to Your glory this morning. To be reminded of how great You are. And to be able to sing of Your grace and Your mercy that in one hand You are transcendent. You are far above us. Far beyond what we could ever comprehend. And yet, You are also right among us. Giving us grace and mercy and, and restoring us and healing us. And Father, I'm just so grateful that we can sing of this depth of You. And, and out of that flow now, may we just be under Your Word, be changed by it. May this text this morning cause us to love Christ more. And I pray this in His name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are back in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in there, so what I would like to do is just remind you a little bit of what we studied so we can get into our, our study of Luke this morning. One of the reasons why we began a study of Luke is, is because Luke unfolds for us the person and work of Jesus Christ in great detail. And that is very important because as Christians, two things happen. on one level, we place our faith in Christ and we become Christians. At another level now, we are to be maturing in Christ. We're to be growing in what it means to know him, love him, follow him. And we're also to be growing in what it means to be rejecting all of the, the, the false teachings about Christ that are around us. Because there's both there's false teaching that goes on there's deception there's wrong ways to view it and there's right ways and, and part of the, the the experience here on earth is growing in maturity in Christ and so what we're looking at here is the gospel of Luke, because the gospel of Luke will not only introduce us to Christ for that point of salvation but will also help us mature in him which is really the key and the way we mature as Christians is by how much we grow in our love and affection and our faith and our trust and, and our obedience to Christ. That's maturity. And it's learning to love in him, love God in him, and love others in him. And so, so this is why we're looking at Luke and, and why it's so important. Now, there have been some themes that we have looked at in Luke. Let me just kind of click them off here kind of quickly for you. When we studied Luke so far over the past year, we've looked at the incarnation. We've seen that God has become a man. We've seen that, he, that, that the Son of Man is the Messiah, He's divine, He's human. We've seen the glory of how powerful He is, that He can command uh, the, the sea to obey Him, that he, can, that he can tell a demon to be gone, He can heal somebody instantly. He's God, and yet He's man. He can feel, He can touch, He can eat, He can walk around. And, and it's incredible to see the depth of that. So on the one hand, He's man. He can be our sacrifice. On the other hand, He's God. He's a perfect sacrifice, which means we can be saved. We've also seen in Luke, salvation. We've learned that salvation comes from Christ alone. The wages of sin is death. It's not good works. And therefore, someone needs to die in order for for justice to be served. And Christ is the way because He's the one that died. We've also learned not only about salvation, but we've learned about something else, the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, He didn't just come just to, to, to change our address from P.O. Box L to P.O. Box 7. He came to introduce the kingdom of God and to bring it to start something that would complete itself. As so we read in Revelation 21, where the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, the, the hope of Christ, the love of, the, of all of Christ and all in that kingdom would come to earth. And we see that in Luke We also see in Luke the Trinity. We see God the Father sending God the Son and and God the Spirit at work leading God the Son and the Spirit of God coming upon situations and the Son of God. And you see all three working together. And if you want to understand the dynamics of the Trinity, just read through Luke and you see how they work together. We've also learned about suffering. Christ came into this world and the path, of salvation is in suffering. And we've learned that that suffering is going to extend to those who follow Him. Because we've been called out of this world to be sent back into this world, and this world hates Christ. Hates Christ, and so suffering is part of the equation. But then finally, we've been introduced to mission. Again, we've been called out to be sent back. Called to be sent. That's the path. And God wants His people not to be passive, not just to say, well, I know God, I'm going to heaven now, let's just see if we can have a good time until I go. No, let me be faithful to proclaim the glories of Christ wherever I am. So those are some of the themes, things that we've been introduced to in Luke. Now let me just give you a little bit of a structure of Luke, again to remind you, so you can see where we're at, where we're studying. The book of Luke can be divided into several different sections, about five sections. The first section, the arrival of Jesus, we see Him... Coming on the scene and what that means with the Incarnation. Then the second section moves into the ministry of Jesus. We begin to see Him doing His work. Preaching, healing, these kind of things. And then the third section that begins in chapter 9, verse 51, goes all the way to chapter 19, verse 27. The largest chunk of the book deals with the reaction to Jesus. And we're going to talk about that in a second here. But that's very important. How did people respond and react when they saw Jesus? And then the last two sections, his death, and then finally his resurrection. So that's how the book is is laid out. But now the question is, why does Luke spend so much time on the reaction to Jesus? And here's the reason why. I like to say it this way. God put all his eggs in one basket, Jesus. He's it. He's his final voice. He's his final path. He's his path to salvation, his path to everything. You're either with Jesus 100% or you're not. Now, what would you do if you were the devil? You would want people to say, hey, you can have both Jesus and something else, right? That would be the strategy if you were the devil. Jesus and. And that is his strategy. Jesus and this. Jesus and that. Jesus and the law. Jesus and freedom. Jesus and this. Jesus and that. And, And he's constantly wanting to add to Jesus. Either add to it or take away. And so, in these reactions to Jesus, we begin to see the straight path cut to Christ. We see the wrong way. It's laid out for us. We begin to see those who want to add to Jesus and how that's wrong. We see those who want to take away from Jesus and how that's wrong. And in seeing the reactions, we see the path. Very important for us because our goal is to mature in him, right? So we want to make sure we see that path. In fact, the very last set of verses we looked at before the Christmas season, in in Luke 11, verse 35, Jesus gives this warning. It's a very sober warning. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Now You you can see what he's saying there. Be careful. You don't want to be deceived. You don't want to think you're on a path leading you to heaven, and it winds up leading you to hell. You don't want that. You don't want that truth that you say, this is true, to turn out not to be true. So he says, be careful. Be careful. And so in all those reactions to Jesus, we get the warning. God is faithful to to make sure we understand what is the right path. Now, we are going to see a reaction by some Pharisees and some lawyers. Uh, Jeff smiles if I say lawyers here, you know, because this is a a whole message to him. No, I'm teasing. (laughs) These lawyers were not lawyers as you think of today in our context. Sometimes they're called scribes. They're called scribes. What, what the, the, the scribes were part of the Pharisee group. And, and what the Pharisees were, were a group of people very committed to the law of God. They said, hey, all of Israel went, were, were, was cast into uh, captivity under Babylon because they didn't stay true to the law, so we're going to stay true to the law. We're going to make sure that we follow all 613 laws in the Bible. So they have, they, they have these 613 laws. They say, okay, you got 613 commandments given in the Bible. So then they did, what they did is they took a bunch of guys that were called scribes. They're, they were called scribes because their job was to copy the Bible by hand because there were no copy machines. Right? So, so you always had people whose job it was to sit there and Genesis, go Genesis all the way to the end, copying it by hand. Well, if that was your job, picture doing that from about the age of 14 to the age of 70. By the time you got to 10, 15 years into this, if you are doing nothing but every day copying the scriptures, you would get to know the scriptures, wouldn't you? They became lawyers. They they were called them lawyers because what they did, the Pharisees said, hey, listen, you guys are experts. What we want you to do is put a hedge around the law. So if the law says don't work on the Sabbath, we want you to define what does work mean. Right? Just so that it's not open for debate. And so they sat down and would come up with hundreds of definitions. This is what work would mean. You know, it's like reading a bill in Congress. Just, just detail after detail after detail after detail. That's what they did. So they took the 613 laws and added thousands of qualifiers to them. One after another after another. And they were the experts. And so when the Pharisees, would, somebody would, would do something, the Pharisees would say, well, come here, lawyer, tell me. Is that legal? And they would say, well, you know, according to our hedge... Because, you see, we want to make sure we're following the law, right? So, so we want to make sure that that's happening. So, no, they're not. Or, yes, they are. And they would determine this. So this is who's at this dinner now. Jesus has been preaching. He just gave out a stern warning. Be careful. Be careful that you're not deceived. And then he's invited to a home. And at this home is a Pharisee, some Pharisees and some lawyers, And this sets the stage for a reaction to Jesus. We're going to see two things in this story. We're going to see, first of all, that a wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of sin and self. So we're going to see this in this story, in this reaction to Jesus. Then we're going to see that a wrong view of sin and self leads to death, not life. So that's what we're going to see in this. We're going to see it's very important that Christ remain the center of everything you cannot add to it you cannot deviate so let's look at this because i want you to see this there's no way to please god outside of christ we're going to see this in this text here let's look here a wrong view of god leads to a wrong view of sin and self verse 37 while jesus was speaking a pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and reclined at the table the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, we're not talking about just washing your hands. Not that kind of a thing. Here's the situation. We know that the book of Deuteronomy says, and this Pharisee knew, the book of Deuteronomy says that you've got to be holy in everything. The law says that. Be holy, for God is holy. It's in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You've got to be holy. So this, the Pharisee said, well, we've got to be holy in everything, which means that we don't want to be touching people who are not holy they'll contaminate us because they're not holy in order to be holy we want to be set apart from everything so they realized something you could be walking down the road and you could see a tree and you could lean up against that tree to fix your sandal and you could have touched a spot that an unclean person just touched five minutes before you when they were fixing their sandal but you didn't know that they touched it And so you could go through your day having touched things that unclean people touched. The Pharisee said, well, so therefore, when we go to eat, we want to make sure that we're not eating with unclean hands so that food goes into our body and defiles us. So we're going to go through a ritual cleansing process to clean all the defilement from all the unclean people that we might have inadvertently come in contact with. So they had a cleansing process. Start with your fingertips and work all all the way up, all the way through, all the way up to the arm... Back all the way back down again, one hand, same thing, this hand, up, all the way down. So before dinner, if you wanted to be holy, you wanted to really obey God, you would sit there, you'd do this. Now, remember when they ate, their table was a circular table, and they had these couches that went out like spokes from the table, and they would just lay down. Oops, sorry about that, forgot the mic was there. They would just lay down, and then they would just kind of eat with their hand, right? So all the Pharisees go over, and lawyers, and they're going through the ritual cleansing process. I'm picturing Jesus, lays down, starts eating. And they're like, oh, I can't believe you, look what he's doing. I mean, he might as well have been selling drugs to nine-year-olds. Seriously. I can't believe you just ate. He's astonished. Absolutely astonished. How in the world could this guy, having touched things that were clearly defiled, how could he eat? Doesn't he love God? Right? I could imagine this is stuff's going on in his mind. So notice what happens. Verse 39. Notice it says, And the Lord said to him. I like the way Luke writes. He's going to make it clear. He doesn't say, and Jesus said to him. He says, and the Lord said to him. We're going to just make it clear here. Who's the Lord? Right? Is it the Pharisees and the lawyers hedges? Are they the ones that are responsible for interpreting the law? Or is it the one who wrote it? Right? Jesus wrote it. He's the Lord. Luke is just making that little point. The Lord said to him. The Master said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? but give His alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Three things Jesus did here. I'd like to divide His answer up into three parts. The first part is I'm just simply calling it the point. Here's the point. He says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. What's He saying? Well, how foolish would it be just to clean the outside of a cup, right? That's dumb. Here's the point. You really think that defilement is going to come because you've touched a tree that an unclean person's touched and then you're going to eat a piece of fruit? Really? You really think that's going to defile you? Yet inside of you, if you really took an honest look, not a happy picture. You're a greedy, selfish, wicked person. If every human, all of us in this room just said, really look into the depth of your heart and ask yourself, has only pure love come out? Have you always done everything because you want to serve and care for others at great expense to yourself? No, if we really look inside, it's really dirty in there. It really, if you really want to be honest. And Jesus is saying, you're out here thinking that's the issue? Touch the tree or walk into the marketplace and brush up against somebody who's defiled, and you're defiled? What is the He's like, no, that's not the point. Inside is the point. So that leads to the principle. What's the principle? You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Very important to catch that he said, you fools. What is a fool? Someone who says there is no God. How does that look if someone says there is no God? Do they actually say I don't believe a God exists? No, someone could say they believe God exists, but they still be a fool. What's a fool then? A fool is someone who says I could really care less about what God says. At the end of the day, I want to do it my way. I might read the Bible. I might go to church. I might sing songs. I might lift my hands in a service. But at the end of the day, when it comes to my week, I'm doing it my way. I might aim for God's outcomes, but I'm going to go for God's outcomes my way. I'm going to do it my way. That's a fool. That's what these guys are doing. God has an outcome, be holy, but you're trying to achieve that outcome your way? That's folly. And then he says, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? There's what they forgot about God. God made all of you, not just your hands. I've shared this before. All of my illustrations I've shared before, unless it happened last week. So, sorry. Just repeat. You can zone out if you've heard the story. If you remember the story, but when I was in high school, uh, VCRs were starting to come out. they were getting popular. People were putting them in their homes and stuff. And uh, a VCR, kids, is a video cassette recorder. Okay. <laughs> we had these big tapes, and we put them in, and they made big noise and all that. Okay. So our pastor of our church got one of these things, and we were all excited about it. And so he invites the youth group over to watch a movie at his house. Now, I grew up, as you remember, if you remember, at a church, it was very strict. And, and the church taught that if you went to a movie, you're going to go to hell. You do not go to movies. And so I'm sitting there at my pastor's house watching a movie. It was a movie that was at the theaters just a few years before. And I'm watching a movie, and all of a sudden it hits me. Wait a minute. How come I'm watching this movie? I thought going to movies is bad. So, as any good 15-year-old, I go, hey, pastor, how come we can watch this movie at your house, but we can't watch it at the theater? His response, oh, it's the theater. It's the theater. Bad things go on at the theater. Lots of bad movies at the theater. You know, if you go there, somebody might think you're going to one of those bad movies. It's just, the theater's bad. And I think Jesus would say, you fool. I think he would. I think, you fool. Do you really think that the issue is that you can watch the Blues Brothers, which is what it was, the Blues Brothers, (laughs) in your pastor's living room, and that's more holy than at the theater? It's folly, isn't it? I think God's more concerned about the Blues Brothers than where I watched it, right? How about the heart? You've missed the point. You're stuck in your framework. This is what the framework says. This is what the framework does. And he says, that's folly. Now, that leads to the practice then. We've got the point. We've got the principle. The principle is God made the inside. And that's what matters to God. Therefore, here's the practice. This is how this should practically play out, the, the illustration. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. He's saying this. If you were to actually stop and say, I'm not going to be worried about whether I'm at a theater or not at a theater. I'm not going to be worried about that I can watch this film here and not watch it there. Blah blah. If I get away from all of that and I say, why don't I start looking at what's coming out of my mouth? Why don't I start looking about the ideas that are going on in my head? Why don't I start saying, God, I'm going to start really taking seriously my attitude and my heart, and I'm going to present that to you so that what would come out would be love for you and love for others. Jesus says, if you really did that, do you realize the whole world's clean at that point? Do you realize you are ceremonially clean? doesn't matter if you wash your hands or not. You will never violate one law of God if you were to look at the condition of your heart and say, God, may everything that I do be be driven towards love for you and love for others. Think about it. You'd never violate the holiness of God because you love him too much. You'd never violate the holiness. You'd never say, oh, I'm going to find joy in that moment even though God hates that, because I love him too much, and I don't want to find joy in what God hates. And you'd never violate any of the laws between man. Why? Because you'd be saying, I want to not only just not kill my enemy, I want to serve him. I want to be kind to him. I want to be generous to him, even if he hates me. You see, love makes everything clean, true love, true agape, I'm going to serve and have affection for God, I'm going to serve and tenderness and care for others, and I'm going to make sure that what comes out of my heart is clean. And the practice is he's saying, guys, look at what's going on in your heart. You might say, this is the law, this is the rule, right? You could say, I'm the head of my home, I'm the head, and I'm going to just operate as the head, but the question is, do I love my wife and love my children? And if I, love, if I don't love my wife and love my children, then it doesn't really matter that I'm the head of the home. I've missed it. I'm a fool. I'm a fool, is what he's saying. The question isn't whether or not I'm the head and Heather submits to me. The question is, do I love her like Christ loved the church? And if I don't, then I'm a fool, especially if I claim headship. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. Get to the heart of the issue. You've missed it have missed it you see that wrong view of god what's that wrong view of god god is only concerned about all just the ceremonies and the frameworks god just wants you to be ritually clean he wants you to be ceremonial clean he wants you that that's what god cares about and he really doesn't care about come that, that, that in your heart is selfishness and greed and self-centeredness and you're going to make others serve you and you don't want to serve them and you don't want to die for others that's a wrong view of god god is concerned about the condition of your heart And if you get that, you'll have a right view of sin and a right view of self. These guys had a low view of sin, didn't they? They thought that that, that wickedness was tolerable, but touching a tree that someone, a defiled person touched, wasn't. They had a low view of sin. They had a wrong view of self, that they could make themselves righteous just by washing their hands. They all messed up. But here's the seriousness of it. This leads to to death because a wrong view of sin and self leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. These guys were not offering an alternative path to God. And so what Jesus does at this point is he offers three woes to some Pharisees and three woes to some lawyers, to the scribes. Now, woes, basically, there's always this debate, and you might see them in your study Bible. Some people say Jesus is like grieving, like, oh, whoa, I'm really sad about this. They see it that way. Other people say, no, Jesus is condemning them. Now, the question is, which one's right? Woe could be taken in one of those two directions. I think if you look at the text and you look at the way the lawyer responded, it's clear Jesus isn't like, boy, this really breaks my heart. It's clear he's judging them. He's condemning them. Because as we'll see in a minute, one of the lawyers goes, wait a minute, man, you're judging us when you do this. And Jesus, oh, yeah, in fact, it's worse for you. But we'll get there. So he's offering these condemnations. He's saying, whoa. In fact, there's three of them. And and as I was looking at them, I realized he, he defines for the Pharisee their problem, their motive, and their deception. Let's just look at it. The first woe deals with their problem. Notice the problem. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now what's he saying? What does it mean that they tithe mint and rue and every herb? These guys were pretty meticulous about how they wanted to obey the law. Now the law says that you're to give money to the Levites because they don't own land. They just work in the temple. And so how are they going to earn a living? They earn a living by people tithing. They're like modern day pastors, right? That's how they earn their living. And so... so they were to set aside 10% of their food and 10% of their spoils to give to the Levites so the Levites could be cared for. So that's what the law says. You're setting aside 10% of what you have to care for the Levites. These Pharisees were so meticulous that if you had them over for a dinner party, and let's just say you had lamb, and this uh, Pharisee decided that he wanted to put some salt on his lamb, you know what he would do? He would take his salt, he would pour it in a pile on his table, he'd take 10% of that salt off and slide it off to the side and then put the rest on his meat. He would tithe his spices. Okay? It'd be like, literally, you're sitting at your house, you're putting some pepper on your food. You go, wait a minute, I've got to give 10% of that to Steve. Right? That's what they were doing. They were tithing their spices. And he's saying, you guys are so meticulous that you're, you've gone way beyond what the law requires. You're tithing your spices, and yet you don't love people. You don't care about people. You don't care about justice. You, you don't care that people are being ripped off on, out there in the streets. You don't care there's people who are hurting, need to be cared for. You would walk away from those people and feel like you're okay because you're going to tithe your salt and pepper? That's what he's saying. He's saying. You can see why it's a whoa. Another story, just illustration of this. I was at a pastor's conference 12 years ago or so, and sitting at the table talking to some pastor, just met this guy. Just saying, hey, where are you from? He tells me where he's from. I said, hey, i got a friend who lives in that town. And I said, do you know him? And I tossed out his name. And he goes, I do know him. Is he a friend of yours? And I said, yes. Do you call him a good friend? I don't know. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I haven't seen him in a while, but we were close years ago. Oh, picks up his food, walks over to another table, <laughs> sits down. This guy's laughing at the table. He's just chuckling. I said, what was that about? He goes, he's a fundamentalist Baptist and he practices second degree separation. I'm like, really? You don't know what second degree separation is. This guy believed, that guy believed that my friend was a heretic. And because I knew him I was therefore associated with a heretic and therefore I was going to defile him so he had to get away from me. He was going to be two degrees removed from all heresy. Now stop and think. I don't. My friend was not a heretic. But let's just say he was. Do you think walking away from me was the right thing to do? He'll be ritually clean in his eyes. But he will have neglected love. Because if my friend was a heretic, I needed help. I would need somebody to tell me the guy's a heretic. But he didn't have enough love to care for me one bit. That's what Jesus said. Woe to you. Woe to you. You know, you'll tithe your salt, but you won't care for anyone. Now why? What's their motivation? Look at verse 43. The next woe gives the motivation. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now you got to remember something. The Pharisees, whenever we hear their name, you know that little don, don, da, don, da, 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 goes on in our minds, right? It's like this evil music begins when, when we hear Pharisee because they're just, we're used to these stories. In that day, they were celebrated. These guys were righteous guys. These guys were the rock stars. These are the guys that, you know, if they were living in our day, we'd put them on the stage and have a conference every other weekend with them, right? You'd have the Pharisee conference, right? Pharisee 2013, you know, they'd all be up there. There would be. You'd have T-shirts, and there'd be books and Internet videos, you know. and Are you a Pharisee? I'm a Pharisee. Yeah, I went to Pharisee 2012. Did you? Yeah, you know, it'd be that kind of a thing, okay? Seriously, I know it sounds like I'm joking, but we do that, right? We venerate people today. We do the same thing. We take guys that we think are holy, we, we turn them into rock stars, and, and we venerate them. We build conferences around them. That's what was going on. He's saying, You guys love that. You love being up. You love walking in the town. You love tithing your salt in front of everybody. People go, Man, you are just way beyond what I could ever be. You're incredible. Come over here. You need to come. You need, we need to have you up. You need to come speak at our synagogue because you're so great. You're so holy. He's like, you guys are eating it up. Your motive is not love. Your motive is pride. That's what your motive is. It's pride. And therefore, they're deceived. Look at the deception. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, you read that and you go, wow, that sounds like it's a pretty intense thing. I don't know what it means, but it sounds pretty. It is. I mean, at that moment, that's the really heavy moment. I mean, all of this has been pretty heavy. And this is the moment when it's just like gasp, silence, awkward moment. You know, why? A Jew would have never walked on a grave. It's it's a defiled place. So you marked the graves. You had areas that were marked. Now, and if you were burying somebody, you would never just bury them and not cover them up because you wouldn't want anybody to walk over the grave. But if somebody did bury somebody in a field and you just walked over them, you wouldn't know that it's there. You you would be undefiled. The whole thing would be a defiled situation. And he's saying, you guys are the defiled ones. You're dead, you're dead, and no one knows it. You all think you're alive, but you're dead and defiled, and everyone around you is defiled, and everyone who's clamoring to hear you speak at their synagogue is defiled. You are all defiled intense now awkwardness is kind of ringing in the air one of the lawyers who now is part of this group of the pharisees right he's the guy who's actually writing all of these rules so he's a little different the pharisees were the ones that were committed to this thing of the pharisees there were some that were set aside as scribes or lawyers and their job was to write the laws so now think about it jesus has just condemned those who practice the laws so the guys who write the laws how are they feeling well, we see. Look at verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Yeah. And so what does Jesus do? He does not turn on the tolerance hat here and say, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult anybody. It's just my view. I'm God, so I'm entitled to it. Right? He doesn't do that. Right? What does he do? He tells them their problem, their motive, and their deception. What's their problem? And he said to them, Woe to you lawyers also! Yeah, and you know what we're going to find out? These guys are even more guilty. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Right? You know what's amazing about legalists, and I've been around many of them, the leaders never do what they ask the other people to do. Right? Right? I mean, I've never seen this. I mean, anytime you have false teaching, the false teachers are always expecting more than what they put on the people, right? I mean, I was picturing this. Imagine turning on TV to one of those religious stations and have some guy up there going, for the first you know, 500 people that call in, I'm going to give you $10,000, right? I mean, those preachers are never sowing a seed of money into my life, expecting God to bless them. They're always wanting me to sow seeds of money into their life. Right? I, I would be amazed if they were to say, you know what, I'm sowing a seed of $20,000 into Steve Luston's life. I'm committing to that because I want God to believe. See, they won't do that. They put a burden on, on us that they will never themselves keep. You see, that's the hypocrisy that the world sees. They see it. That's why they, they say the church is filled with hypocrites because they see the lawyers, they see them not wanting to lift the finger. And then he gets into the motive. Now this area, I'm going to read this. This might seem confusing, so hopefully I can break it down for you. Notice their motive. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, you might read and go, what does that mean? Let me try to break it down for you. Keep in mind, first of all, that these guys believed that they were putting all these hedges because they wanted to be faithful to the law of God. The writing of that day was very clear that said they didn't want to be thrown out of the land like their fathers who had disobeyed God. Now, Jesus, in a very simple term, is saying, you're acting just like the, the guys who got thrown out of the land. You're, you're equal to them. So that, that's the simplicity of what he's saying. Now let me build it, break it down for you a little bit. When he talks about building the tombs, here's what would happen. A prophet would come up. He'd proclaim the word of God. The people would get upset, and so they would kill him. Then they would build a big tomb and say how great that prophet was. And they would venerate him. Hypocrisy, right? And so what you have are these guys, in terms of building the tombs, what they're doing is they're venerating all of the prophets. Well, at the same time, their heart's exactly the same as those who killed the prophets. But by building the tombs and doing exactly what their forefathers did, they are sharing in the guilt. You're doing the same thing your fathers did. You're doing the same thing all of those evil kings did and all those evil guys that killed the prophets and then built some kind of a tomb to say how great the prophet was. And you're participating in the same action. That's why in 49 he says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets. When he says the wisdom of God, he's not referring specifically to an Old Testament prophecy. What he's saying is God is still sending prophets. In fact, he's even sending apostles. There are going to be more people coming, and you're going to kill them. I think he's prophesying in a real subtle way his own death here. You're going to kill me. And yet you're going to venerate all these guys. Oh, we love the prophets. We love Isaiah. We love him. We think he's great. No, you would have been one of the guys out to kill him. That's what he's saying. Your actions are exactly the same. And because, now catch this, because they spend all their day reading the Scriptures, reading what happened, and still believing that that evil and wicked heart is right, they are going to share in the totality of the condemnation of the Word of God. Everybody who's responsible for teaching has to bear the weight of what it is they're teaching. And they are no less. They spend their day going. Now, the Hebrew Bible started in Genesis and ended in 2 Chronicles, and everything else was kind of put within those. And so he says you have Abel, who was the first martyr, and you have Zechariah, who was the last martyr in the book of 2 Chronicles. So in the Hebrew Bible... He's basically saying, everybody who was ever killed, you're sharing in all of that guilt because you're a teacher. And you know what's different. And you're doing exactly what your fathers did. And therefore, it's going to be really bad on you. Because they're having a conversation with the promised one. Whom they should have known it was him. They want to kill the one the scriptures proclaim has come. They're not going to get away. It's intense. Woe to you. There's your motive. You want to know what your motive is? You are wicked, self-righteous, just like your forefathers. And you hate God. That's your motive. And therefore, they're deceived. Look at the deception in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Let me kind of illustrate this point here. Let's just say in some horrible way, all of us at this moment got infected with a deadly disease that's going to kill us at 4 o'clock today. Okay, 4 o'clock, we're all dead. But over there in that, down that hallway is a cabinet, and in that cabinet is the antidote for all of us, and the cabinet is locked. But if we open the cabinet, we can have life. And so let's just say I'm standing here, and there's the key to the cabinet, and I'm just as infected as you guys are. And I take that key, and I go over, and I dump it down a sewer. What have I done? I've condemned me to death and you to death. I had the key, and what did I do? Threw it away. They were the scribes. They possessed the very word of God. And rather than unfold the word of God that would lead you to faith in the Messiah, they obscured it with thousands of rules and thousands of things that you could do this here and not do this there, this is that and this is that, while ignoring the heart. And he said, you know what you've done? You've hidden the key, you've thrown the key away, and now you've become a stumbling block to anybody who wants life. Because they come to you for teaching, and instead of getting teaching, they get your garbage. And you're getting in the way, and I'm going to judge you for it. So there's what they've done. There's the deception. They're deceived. They're deceiving others. It's bad. Okay. Intense dinner party. Very intense. Now here's the reality. You've got two responses to this, right? One response is the Pharisees and the lawyers can say, be merciful to me, God. We don't want these woes on us. Or they can do what they did in verses 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him on something he might say. They're protecting their ego. They're protecting their pride. And so rather than submit to this teaching, what do they want to do? They want to catch Jesus. They want to entrap him, right? So they become like reporters. Right? You ever watch like a press conference of a politician who's got some event going on and and they say, okay, we're done with the questions. And they're just firing questions at him. So are you saying you weren't there? You're saying you were there? You're saying you saw that person? Or are they just firing these questions at him, hoping that the politician would go back to the microphone and say something? Say something. You see, that's what they did. They just kept peppering him with questions, hoping to trap him, hoping to catch him, hoping that he would say something where he would violate the law, and they could say, aha, you're a hypocrite too. But we know how that ends. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, let's wrap it up. What's the conclusion to this thing? Well, we've seen. Wrong view of God leads to wrong view of sin itself. Wrong view of God, God is only concerned about all just the ritual frameworks. He's not at all concerned about your heart. That leads you then to lower the standard of sin, to uh, high, make the, the position of self higher. I can make myself righteous. I am righteous because I do this. And sin is only just the fact that I haven't followed the framework, while at the same time ignoring what's coming out of my mouth and what's going on in my heart. In my mind. And that wrong view of sin and death is not a good thing. That only leads to the the judgment of God. So what's the solution to this? The whole point of Luke is to tell us the solution is in Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is the only one who actually deals with your heart. Jesus is the only one that says... I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to do a bunch of things for you. In fact, I've got a list of things that really tell us why Jesus has to be the center of our life. Just just listen to this. Jesus has to be the center because Jesus offers perfect forgiveness. You realize the only thing the law can do is keep telling you what you're doing wrong. That's it. It's just that nagging person. Did it wrong. That's wrong. Did that wrong. Did that wrong too. That's all it can do. Jesus can come and say, I'm going to forgive you. That's the good news. Not only does Jesus forgive us, he gives us his righteousness. The law tries to get me to conform to not working. The law can get me to conform to not murdering somebody, but Jesus can actually transform me into loving my enemies. Now I'm in a different plane. I get his righteousness. Jesus offers us access to the Holy Spirit. There's the power for living. I don't have to muster it up through my own flesh. I actually have access to the very Spirit of God that gives me power. Then, here's another amazing thing. Jesus offers us grace to stand in so we can grow. You know what the law says? Pass or fail. You're either in or you're out. You know what Jesus says? He says, hey, I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I'm going to cleanse you moment by moment. And even when you blow it, my grace is sufficient and I'll continue to cleanse you. See, he offers us grace. Something the law does not give. The law demands. You do it this way or it's over. Jesus says, you know what? I'm with you. I'll take my time with you. And the final piece, Jesus offers us a heart to love God To love others. And Jesus made it clear. If we're concerned about what's coming out of our heart. We will fulfill the whole law. Everything will be clean. The two planes are covered. Righteousness. And relationships. They're covered in love. So Christ has to be the center. So. Let me just say this in closing. And give us an opportunity to do this together. I just wrote a simple prayer for myself. The end of this. And I'll share it with you. My, my prayer is, Jesus, make, I want to make you the center of my life. Help me make you the center of my life. And then a second part of that prayer is help me to be more concerned about what's going on in my heart than what's going on outside my body. Help me to be concerned about what's going on inside there. And start taking that seriously. I think if we start praying that way, we're starting to mature in Christ. I think that's why Luke wrote this. The inspiration of the Spirit so that we would see this and love Christ all the more. So why don't you bow your head with me? Let me just pray that prayer for all of us. Let's just pray together. Jesus, I, I do come before you asking She would help us not to get caught up in religion or caught up in things that don't change our hearts and just operating without thinking about what's going on on the inside. I pray that Christ would be the center of everything. That we would would turn to Him and, and live for Him and that we would say, Jesus, just start working on the inside. As it comes out, I'll stand in grace and as the issues begin to start flowing out, that I would just bring them to the cross for forgiveness. And that I wouldn't be afraid to face this out of fear, but out of love, knowing that You care about us and You'll perfect us in Your time. But Lord, may we be people who think this way and, and may our hearts and our minds be completely absorbed with worshiping and living for Christ, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And, being caught up with that, so that stuff might just truly impact the world. So Lord, I commit us all to You as we struggle with this. But may it be more real than ever. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.